As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to episode four of American Carnage's five-part series on John Brown. This episode is titled, No Ghost of a Distinction. So I know he's been dead for like 170 years, but I want you to humor me for a second and imagine that I am able to resuscitate John Brown and bring him back to life. And, you know, I introduce myself and I, you know, explain to him what a podcast is. And then I say, hey, John Brown, I am going to show you all of the books and all of the magazine articles and all the movies, explain what that is too, I guess, that have been made about you since you were executed by the state of Virginia in 1859. And so John Brown and I sit down and we watch this entire monumental catalog that goes back decades. And when we're done with that, you know, I'd give my left arm and maybe my left something else for the chance to do this, right? I say to him, John Brown, of all the things that we've just been through and just watched, what in there, what theme or what argument pissed you off the most? What made you the angriest? And if I had the chance to ask John Brown that question and let him respond, I don't know for sure, but I have a hunch, strong suspicion. It's not like I can prove it or you can disprove it, I guess, in my favor. But my strong suspicion is that what John Brown will identify as the thing of all the material about him that pisses him off the most is the thing that we're going to talk about in today's episode our fourth episode, and finally, the one that we get to finally discuss the events at Harper's Ferry for which John Brown is most remembered. Because there's one thing in particular about this raid at Harper's Ferry that John Brown's haters are going to just love repeating again and again and again. And to be fair, even some people who are not, you know, John Brown haters, even some people who admire him in many ways will fixate on the following point that we'll be discussing as evidence of what they call the single most important failure by John Brown at the single most pivotal juncture of his life. And what these people will argue, sometimes implicitly, sometimes explicitly, but what they'll say is that John Brown failed because he failed to secure the support of the black slaves on which the entire raid was premised. Right, on October 16th, 1859, Brown will invade Harper's Ferry with an army of just about 20 guys. Two days later, all of these men will be either dead, captured, or on the run for their lives. And so the question that gets asked over and over and over again in a way that I think if I resuscitated John Brown would have driven him mad is the following. What happened to the supposed slave army that John Brown was counting on. Why didn't they rise up? Wasn't the whole plan here, John Brown's entire conception of this raid, that once he invaded Harper's Ferry, it would spark such unrest and so much sympathy from the black slaves that they would flock to his banner and fundamentally destabilize the slave system. And I think pretty clearly that is what John Brown wanted to happen here. 
David Reynolds, in his biography of John Brown, will write that his theory of the raid was the following, quote, would his guerrilla campaign cause the fall of slavery? Brown had always believed it would because he was sure the revolution would be contagious. Enslaved blacks all over the South would catch the fever of revolt. They would violently cast off their shackles and rush to the mountains to join his growing black colony, which might actually be able to create an independent society, end quote. And so you look at the wreckage of the raid, with Brown and his men locked up or scattered or dead, and the temptation there is always to ask, where were the slave reinforcements? Why didn't they show up? And I think this is such a controversial and such a loaded question and one that has provoked such fierce debate because it's really used as a proxy for this other critical question, which is, did the slaves themselves support John Brown's violent crusade to overthrow slavery? Were they themselves willing to join and believe in and fight in his quixotic guerrilla war against the slave power at the risk of their own lives? I think it feels pretty safe to say, right, that if they were, John Brown's raid looks much more morally defensible because then you can say, right, that the slaves believed in what he was doing, that they saw in his actions a means of ending their own oppression. But if the slaves themselves were not willing to throw in their lots, if even the slaves saw Brown as this sort of wide-eyed religious maniac that so many critics have made him out to be, then who are we now to say that they, the slaves, were wrong and that, in fact, the slaves themselves should have been willing to do things that many historians and Brown's critics will for sure maintain that they were not, in fact, willing to do? Who are we to appoint ourselves to a position of higher moral authority than the slaves themselves? And so for 170-some-odd years, starting with the slaveholders themselves, Brown's critics have tried desperately hard to argue that you can prove that Brown failed because the slaves themselves did not join him. This effort is going to start right away. I mean, literally within days after Harper's Ferry. A South Carolina secessionist and slaveholder would write on October 31st, 1859, the following less than a week after the invasion. The following quote, by the way, comes from the Tribunal by John Stauffer and Zoe Trod. This was a front page article in the Charleston Mercury. This uh, Southern slaveholder would write, quote, The insurrection at Harper's Ferry was simply no insurrection at all. Not a slave joined the reckless fanatics who sought to promote their nefarious policy of emancipation by blood and by treason, end quote. And then just a few weeks later, the pro-slavery Arkansas Gazette would write, similarly, also courtesy of this Stroffer and Trod book, quote, The very fact that not a single slave joined or attempted to join Brown's mad expedition is evidence that they are satisfied with their condition and should be a warning an awful warning to all white men contemplating such insane acts of hostility, end quote. Now, obviously, we need to be more than a little skeptical towards the claims about John Brown of the Southern slaveholders, but it's much more difficult when, as you do, you have mainstream historians and journalists. I mean, I just saw an article about this in the New York Times just a few years ago that argue that this failure of the slaves to come to Brown's side is a meaningful indictment of Brown's raid and its conception and its execution. These historians and journalists will look at the failure of the slaves to join Brown not as evidence that slavery was good and that the slaves were happy, but that they saw Brown as essentially being on a suicide mission and decided for good reason not to throw away their lives as part of it. And again, I don't at all think you need to be a racist or a John Brown hater to entertain this possibility or believe it. I mean, David Reynolds, who in my mind is as about as sympathetic as a Brown biographer as you can find, he will float a theory that feels at least halfway plausible to me, which is that the slaves were simply confused in part by this idea of a white man coming to lead a slave insurrection. And I think it's hard to blame them, right? I mean, this is part of what makes Brown so different than all the other slave insurrections. Nat Turner, Denmark VC, these are black men and slaves who led the slave revolts. And Brown, of course, is white. And for most of these slaves' lives, it's likely that most or all of their interactions with white people are through this lens of these white people who are their oppressors. The only white people they really know benefit from the slave system. And so would it be any surprise, really, if 
the black slaves were at least a little suspicious of being led by a white man who shows up in the middle of the night and gives them hours or even minutes to make up their mind about what to do. Reynolds writes, quote, Whites for the slaves were oppressors, not liberators. A white man who led blacks and other whites against their white masters, this was an unknown being, bizarre and completely alien to slaves, degraded by years of ignorance and forced submission, end quote. And of course, beyond simply being confused, they might have been legitimately terrified. And there's obviously very good reason for them to have been terrified. My understanding, right, is that in the 1830s, you get some slave revolts, Nat Turner's being the most famous, but the wave of reprisals and repression, the totalitarian system that gets implemented in the wake of Nat Turner's revolt is so immense and so barbaric that the number of slave revolts really quiets down in the 1840s and 1850s. And this historian, David Reynolds, will quote a slave of this area who would be interviewed about this very question in 1861. And this slave will say, yeah, of course, we were terrified. This slave, according to uh, Reynolds, will say on the question of why he did not join John Brown. And just um, as a quick note, in the quote that follows, gibbets uh, is a term that refers to gallows, you know, where people get hanged. This slave will say on the question of why he did not join John Brown, quote, I can see gibbets all over the slaveholding states, with Negroes stretched upon them like slaughtered hogs, and pens of light wood on fire. Methinks I hear their screams. I can see them, bent upon their knees, begging for God's sake to have mercy. I can see them chained together and shot down like wild beasts. These are but shadows of what would have been done had John Brown succeeded in his plan of getting up a rebellion among the slaves, end quote. So right, one answer to the question, did the slaves join Brown, is that no, they didn't because they were happy being slaves, which is the nonsense slaveholder answer. But then there's the second answer, which is no, they didn't because they had very good reasons not to. I apologize for spending so much time on this question to start our episode here, but H.W. Brands, a contemporary historian, whose book, The Zealot and the Emancipator, which is about Brown, the zealot of the title, and the emancipator, which is uh, Lincoln, which was just published in 2020, will really emphasize this failure. Brands will write, quote, Brown demonstrated that a person can be on the right side of history and still go terribly wrong. Slaves in the area refused to join what they deemed accurately, as it turned out, to be a suicide mission, end quote. I am, to be clear, not a historian. I am a journalist doing my best to sift through the tremendous work that historians have done for decades on John Brown. But my reading of the evidence, frankly, is that the theory advanced here by Brands and by other historians is actually wrong. That, in fact, the historical record points to not, you know, a Spartacus-like uprising that overthrew the slave system, obviously, but meaningful and real and quite significant involvement and participation and support from the slaves for John Brown's raid. I apologize for the brief digression, but I am Jewish. I have some family who was uh, in Eastern Europe, in Poland, in fact, when Hitler and the Nazis invaded in 1939. And one thing that just turns my stomach when I read about the Holocaust is the suggestion that some people sometimes make that, you know, why didn't the Jews do more to fight back against the Nazis. And of course, there's tons of evidence, right, that they did, the Warsaw Uprising being among the most prominent. And to me, there's something similar here where you have to ignore reams of evidence to find that the slaves did not want to fight with John Brown. The historian uh, Hannah Geffert, uh, apologize to the professor if I'm mispronouncing her last name, Geffert is fantastic on this point. She is a professor at Shepherd University in West Virginia, um, that's not that far from Harper's Ferry itself. In her essay, John Brown and His Black Allies, she will really say that many of the preceding histories of Harper's Ferry really miss the crucial ways in which black slaves expressed their support for what Brown did as best they could, often at unbelievable risk to themselves and often with the punishment of death for doing so. One of the monumental challenges for a historian like Gefford is that, of course, the Southern slaveholders have every reason after the raid to downplay any sign that the slaves supported what John Brown did. And compounding the challenge, right, is that nobody at the time is really thinking to go out and interview the slaves themselves. So there's very little 
direct evidence of what they themselves thought of John Brown. But what Geffert does, which I think is brilliant, is that she looks like a good investigative journalist at the actual property and other records that are left from the era. And what she writes is that there's actually a ton of evidence that in the aftermath of John Brown's raid, slaves across the area took out their revenge on the slaveholders who had fought Brown. In the aftermath of the raid, right, Southern slaveholders will see their crops, their stockyards, their stables, their barns all set ablaze. Some of those who were directly targeted were those who fought against Brown. The farm of one of the Southern slaveholders who fought Brown will be basically burned down completely. This slaveholder's brother will then see all of his horses and sheep die mysteriously and quite suddenly. Geffert says probably due to poisoning by the slaves. Three of the jurors who convict Brown will see their property destroyed all within the same week. One man will wire the Virginia governor three weeks or so after the conclusion of Brown's raid, asking and begging for help. And the governor, this is remember, three weeks after the raid, will send 500 troops to Charlestown to calm, calm things down. And yet, even despite this huge military presence, the fires continue, again, apparently started by the slaves in solidarity with Brown. One of the things that I find really interesting is that even though the Southern slaveholders are so adamant that there's no solidarity for Brown among the slaves, what they also want to do is get compensation from the state for the raid. And so Geffert, I don't know if she found them herself or just found someone else who had, but she produces these letters from the Southern slaveholders being like, well, my slaves burned down this property, possibly in connection with Brown, so I need to be compensated for that, even as the Southern slave system overall is maintaining right that none of the slaves support what Brown is doing. Geffert writes, quote, conventional histories of the raid have ignored this information, but no one would have gone out of their way to publicly affiliate with the raid. Secret revolutionary groups rarely keep records, end quote. But okay, maybe for the sake of argument, we can counter all this by saying that this does not obviously prove that the slaves wanted to join Brown's raid itself. Right? There's a difference between participating in the violent raid and doing these guerrilla actions in its aftermath in the weeks following it. But the thing with that argument is that there actually is abundant evidence that many, many slaves were eager to join the raid itself. The historian Louis DeCare Jr. will cite a slave named Anthony Hunter, who about a decade after Harper's Ferry will say that more than 500 slaves were ready to join up with him. It's a little hard to verify with this, but there are eyewitness accounts of hundreds of slaves and black people filling the road to Harper's Ferry, apparently seeing if there was a way that they could help. A different person, a white person, a train en engineer who's in the area, is going to report that he saw at least 300 men, most of them black, shouting, quote, that they had longed for liberty and that they had been held in bondage long enough. As late as 1887, John Brown's prosecutor will maintain that the mountains and woods were full and teeming with Brown's men, slaves who were ready to help. And then perhaps most important of all, in my opinion at least, is that there actually were in fact slaves who did in fact join with Brown directly and die fighting alongside him. This is one of the infuriating things about the historical record. We have no idea, it seems to me, from everything I've read, we have no idea exactly how many slaves fought with Brown. We have no interviews with them that I could find. We have no sense of their stories. But we know that there was a coachman, a slave named Jim, who eagerly accepted a pistol and a supply of cartridges and spent much of the raid fighting and will be later recognized by Brown's men as one of the fiercest fighters they had. Even the Virginians have to acknowledge that. Another slave will load weapons for Brown's men all day long despite heavy oncoming gunfire. Several others would spend the raid guarding the rifle works that Brown and his men had seized. We also get this scene of one very old black slave. As far as I can tell, we have no idea what this guy's name is, which is again, just baffling and infuriating in its own right. But anyway, Brown's men, for whatever reason, will give this old black man a double-barreled shotgun and this old slave will blast away at the white townspeople and kill at least one of them. As I've said, Brown starts the raid with 22 men. Of those 22, five are black. But what Geffords writes is that as many as 17 additional slaves will play important roles in the fighting at Harper's Ferry. I've seen estimates that are closer to two dozen. 
as we'll discuss further in this episode, one of the things that Brown will do first at Harper's Ferry is to liberate some of the slaves in the surrounding plantations, and many of these men help Brown's raid directly. And so remember, there are mainstream historians that are arguing that the slaves did not join and did not want to join with John Brown. But then how do you reconcile that with the credible estimates that there were virtually as many slaves partaking in the raid as there were John Brown raiders from the outset? How do you square the fact that about as many slaves who joined Brown were killed as part of the raid at Harper's Ferry as were killed from among Brown's initial set of raiders? And to me, this argument that the slaves abandoned Brown makes even less sense when you understand the full story of how John Brown's raid came together. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So just to review and set the stage for today's episode, in 1856, Brown will help start the Civil War in Kansas that will help ensure that the territory enters the Union as a free state rather than as a slave state. Go back and listen to episodes two and three if for some reason you haven't already. But after leaving Kansas, Brown will spend the next several years partially on the run and in hiding, but partially raising money throughout the Northeast because, remember, before going to Kansas, he had already been conceiving of what would become the raid on Harper's Ferry. And almost immediately after he comes back East, and he's becoming this national celebrity, but Brown will get really frustrated at his ostensible allies among the white abolitionists who, in Brown's view, are really not doing nearly enough to help him. In April 1857, Brown writes an angry letter articulating about how annoyed he is at the lack of support from his white abolitionist allies. The letter is not really addressed to anyone in particular. It's not exactly an open letter either. He's not planning on publishing it. It's more like a cathartic exercise, an opportunity for him to to vent months of pent-up anger and frustration with sort of the mainstream white abolitionist movement. Brown will list the trials that he and his men have suffered that we chronicled in episodes two and three. In the following letter, by the way, Brown is referring to himself in the third person, and he will lament the fact that, quote, Brown leaves the states with a feeling of deepest sadness that after having exhausted his own small means and with his family and his brave men suffering hunger, cold, nakedness, and some of them sickness, wounds, imprisonment, and irons, with extreme cruel treatment and others' death, that after lying on the ground for months in the most sickly, unwholesome, and uncomfortable places, some of the time was sick and wounded, destitute of any shelter, and hunted like wolves, that after all this, they cannot secure amid all the wealth, luxury, and extravagance of the heaven-exalted people, and here Brown is referring derisively to the white abolitionist allies, that even among that, they cannot secure the necessary supplies of the common soldier, end quote. It's at this low point, again feeling abandoned, that Brown will leave the Northeast and go to a small abolitionist hub in the town of Tabor, Iowa. There he will meet uh, a guy named Hugh Forbes, an English mercenary that he had hired back in New York to help plan the raid. Forbes claims that he fought in the Italian Revolution of 1848 under Giuseppe Garibaldi. I don't know if that's true. But anyway, Forbes and Brown meet to discuss the future raid on the South, and yet they immediately disagree about the right course of action. Brown wants to build a racially integrated army of whites, free blacks, and fugitive slaves. Forbes is a racist. He argues that black people are not good soldiers and should not be trusted with this mission. This, of course, should be an immediate red flag for Brown, but he keeps Forbes on. Forbes will complain bitterly about his lack of pay for Brown and then sort of in a huff, depart and leave. We'll come back to Forbes in a second. But after he leaves him, and Brown already, again, as I said, feels abandoned by his white abolitionist allies, Brown will do something that he really ends up doing over and over again in this time period, which is to rely and ask for black abolitionists for support. 
In the spring of 1858, Brown will organize an anti-slavery convention in the town of Chatham, which is Ontario, Canada. Brown will invite a wide cross-section of the abolitionist movement to Chatham. And I'm going to emphasize this point. Brown invites hundreds of abolitionists to attend this conference. Only 46 people actually show up, and of that 46, 34, close to 75% of them, are black. On his way there, Brown will stay at the home of Harriet Tubman, of course, the famous leader of the Underground Railroad. W.E.B. Du Bois' biography of Brown will discuss how, at this point, Tubman already had a $10,000 bounty on her head. And around the time that she meets John Brown, she's been having these, like, very vivid and strange dreams. Du Bois will write of these dreams, quote, Tubman laid great stress on a dream which she had had just before she met Captain Brown. She thought she was, and here Du Bois is quoting Tubman, in a wilderness sort of place, this is the dream that they're describing, all full of rocks and bushes. When Tubman saw a serpent raise its head among the rocks, and as it did so, it became the head of an old man with a long white beard gazing at her, wishful-like, as if it was going to speak to her. And then two other heads rose up beside him, younger than he, and as she stood looking at them, wondering what they could want with her, a great crowd of men rushed in and struck the younger heads, and then the head of the old man, which was still looking at her. This dream Tubman had again and again, and could not interpret it. But when she met Captain Brown, shortly after, behold, he was the very image of the head she had seen. But still, she could not make out what her dream signified, till the news came to her of the tragedy at Harper's Ferry. And then she knew that the other two heads were his two sons." End quote. After this meeting, Brown and Tubman will become each other's staunch allies. He will refer to her as a general and sing her praises at every chances. I've seen some historians argue that it is only because she got sick right before the raid at Harper's Ferry, in fact, that she missed it. It's a historical hypothetical you would love to be able to play with, right? Like, what if Harriet Tubman had been among John Brown's raiders at Harper's Ferry? But anyway, Tubman is certainly not alone among black abolitionists in marching with Brown at this point. At Chatham, for instance, black men are elected to office and hold positions of prominence in this new organization he's building. The black journalist Martin Delaney is elected to chair the convention. William C. Monroe, a black teacher, will be elected president. The freed black man Osborne P. Anderson is elected to the Congress. Anderson is a writer, and he will be particularly important later, so remember him. But anyway, after two days of debate, the delegates adopt a new constitution with all 46 men who attend at Chatham signing their names. They call it the Provisional Constitution, and it's really a remarkable document. While clearly based on the U.S. Constitution, it's adapted and molded for a mobile guerrilla organization. It includes more than 40 articles on how to organize a new government, setting up a new Congress, conducting impeachment hearings, that kind of thing. This is the governing document, right, for the new slave colony Brown imagines starting in the Appalachian Mountains. Of course, America's original constitution makes no mention of slavery. This one decries it as a great evil. Brown will later also write a second declaration of independence, but with a founding decree that pledges air, water, and land for all, as well as equal privileges and rights for all irrespective of race, religion, ethnicity, and sex. As I've said, there's going to be much made after Harper's Ferry about how the slaves themselves weren't willing to join Brown's extreme insurrection, and yet, at least at Chatham, what becomes clear to me from the historical record is that Brown is in some ways a moderating influence, John Brown, a moderating influence on the black radicals who joined him. I mean, for instance, a debate is going to flare up at this convention about the battle flag under which they ought to fight. A group of escaped slaves will argue, and quite reasonably, I think, that they could never dream of fighting under the American flag and that they, quote, carried their emblem on their backs, which is a reference to the scars from being whipped by their masters. And again, this seems like a very understandable position, but Brown will stand up and deliver an impassionate speech about the meaning and the symbolism of the American flag and why they need to keep it. Brown prevails in this argument and they agree to adopt the American flag at Chatham. Similarly, Brown will also insist that despite everything they're doing, that they are not seeking to overthrow the U.S. government. 
in the preamble, he explicitly refers to we, the citizens of the United States. Article 46 of Brown's provisional constitution is even more direct, saying that, you know, this everything we're doing here should not at all be construed as attempting to overthrow any state or government in the United States, but to instead repeal it and amend it. At this point, everything really does seem to be going according to plan. The convention has been a success. The men are excited and eager to go. Soon they believe they will return to the United States and launch an attack on the slave system. And at this moment, when everything seems to be going so right, suddenly everything will also begin to fall apart. Because Brown will learn at this point that he's been betrayed by Hugh Forbes, that English mercenary. Forbes is so angry about his pay that he just starts writing letters and he doesn't know who the financial backers for Brown is at this point. So he'll just send letters all over the Northeast being like, this guy John Brown has this crazy plan to invade the South. And crucially at this point, Brown's white financial backers in a group called the Secret Six, these are his main funders, they order him to postpone the attack by a year. Osborne Anderson, that writer I was telling you about, will repeatedly refer to Forbes as the, quote, Judas of this story. Brown begs his white funders to let him attack anyway. He's saying, you know, I have this convention wrapped up. I have all this momentum. I have these men who are ready to go and fight. But with Forbes threatening to blow up the whole project, the funders say no. And Brown agrees to lay low in Kansas to discredit the accusations and sort of let, let this whole thing blow over. So Brown and his men, they pick up and they go back to Kansas. And while they're there, they are approached in the night by a slave who asks for help because this slave has just learned that he is about to be separated from his family. His family is going to be sold south to a southern plantation far from Missouri. And you can probably guess that John Brown, being told to lay low and keep his head down, when he hears this story, does not, in fact, do that. Brown and his men raid the slaveholder's home. They liberate 11 slaves, including this family that had begged him for help. And then he and his men embark with them on this incredible, uh, over a thousand mile journey to Canada. The Missouri governor at this point will put a $3,000 bounty on John Brown's head, the equivalent to over $100,000 today. And James Buchanan, who is literally the president of the United States, will add $250 to sweeten the pot. Brown and his men and the slaves they've liberated are chased across four states and two territories by the feds and militias and posses of bounty hunters. One of the slaves that they liberate is a pregnant mother, and she will give birth to a boy just before this whole crew makes it into Canada. The boy, by the way, will be named John Brown. We will have an entire episode of bonus content devoted to this um, incident. I highly recommend you listen. It will be on our Patreon when we're done with it. I'm sorry we can't cover it here in detail, so you'll have to check it out there. But after Brown successfully shepherds these 11 slaves to freedom in Canada, he will go back to North Elba, New York for the last time. This is going to be the last time that he'll see his wife and children. There's not much of a record of this final visit, unfortunately, so we can mostly speculate what happened. Imagine this for a second, right? You haven't seen your family in months. You've been gone for years at a time, fighting a guerrilla war on the other side of the country, traveling from city to city. One of your sons is dead, Frederick gunned down in broad daylight. Another is emotionally scarred for life. If you're John Brown's second wife, Mary Ann Daly, how do you really feel about this new adventure? And yet in the end, three of John Brown's sons and two of his sons-in-law decide to join him. The men will make their way south, disguised as farmers who are looking to settle in Virginia. Brown will hire an Amish man to transport hundreds of guns from Pennsylvania, where he stashed them, to his new base that's going to be in Maryland. The men rent a farmhouse on the outskirts of town, and they begin sending out letters to the other recruits that John Brown has lined up. And over the course of the next three months, the other members of the party begin to arrive. To me, this feels like a little bit like the scene in the heist movie, like Ocean's Eleven, where the old gang is like finally getting back together. There will be 22 of them in total, including Brown himself. It's a remarkably eclectic group. Brown's raiders include a wealthy lawyer, a school teacher, a poet, a farmer, a merchant, and several outlaws. You have at least two white men descended from slaveholders and two black men who escaped the South, including a former slave. You have a convicted criminal who broke out of a prison in Kansas, and a syphilitic rich kid who has no combat or military experience to speak of. You have men who graduated with distinction from some of the nation's elite colleges, and you have others who are part of this raiding party that are barely literate. 
From North Elba comes Brown's three sons, Owen, Oliver, and Watson, as well as his sons-in-law, Dauphin and William Thompson. There's John Henry Kagey. This is Brown's second in command, an experienced fighter from Kansas. Kagey is kind of like the brains behind the operation. But there's also Aaron Stevens. Stevens is a brash and ruthless veteran of the Mexican-American War, also a veteran of Kansas, who was tried by a military tribunal after he almost beat his commanding officer to death. Stevens was imprisoned at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas, somehow managed to escape. He's described as this, quote, dark, handsome Spartacus, and the women after Harper's Ferry will kind of gawk at how strong and tall and muscular this guy is. As the historian Tony Horowitz notes, if Kagi is kind of like the brains behind Brown's operation, then Stevens is for sure the brawn, the muscle. And so if I'm, you know, the Hollywood director trying to make the movie about John Brown's raid, I think I'm going to want to cast in the role of John Henry Kagi, someone who fits this bill of like the cerebral master thinker, maybe like a Edward Norton, something like that. And Stevens is like this Jason Momoa, Dwayne Johnson, kind of like all muscle and brawn. And then the third character here is this guy named John Edwin Cook. This is going to be John Brown's spy. He's another Kansas veteran. And Cook has this reputation for being a dandy and a dilettante. He has these beautiful curls, these locks of hair. And Brown is going to send him weeks in advance of the Harper's Ferry raid into the town to gather information. There he's going to charm the skirts off the wives of all the townsfolk and will provide really useful information uh, for the raiders. And I apologize, I don't have time to go into all of the raiders and all their backstories, but for me, it feels important for some reason to read their names aloud. There's the group of Kansas veterans who joined Brown, William Lehman, Albert Hazlitt, Charles Plummer, Charles Tidd, and Jerry Anderson. There's a Canadian, uh, I guess this is an international brigade. Uh, there's a Canadian wagon maker named Stuart Taylor. There's two radical Quaker brothers from Iowa, Barclay and Edwin Coppock, who become the black sheep of their family because they decide to ignore the pacifistic um, dictates of Quakerism. And then there's uh, Francis Jackson Merriam. He's one of the last to arrive, physically frail, half-blind, and a little unstable. But even Merriam makes a big difference. He will show up with $600 worth of gold and ammunition, which is the product of his inheritance. And this helps set the whole raid in motion. So even he makes a difference. And then lastly, there are the black recruits. They are crucial on the battlefield and for training, but perhaps they are most important for what they represent. Remember, this is an integrated egalitarian armed group dedicated to the eradication of slavery. And this in and of itself captures and offends the deepest and darkest feelings of the plantation class. Among Brown's black soldiers are men like Dangerfield Newby, a freed slave from Virginia whose wife is still being held in slavery. There's Osborne Anderson, who participated in Chatham that we were telling you about. Anderson will just barely make it out of Harper's Ferry alive after he and one of the Kansas veterans, a guy named Albert Hazlitt, will escape through the forest as they're being hunted by the U.S. Army. They go more than 48 hours without food and they nearly starve to death in the woods. They will raid a nearby cornfield in the middle of the night. And then soon after this, Hazlitt will break down physically and be unable to carry out his journey. Hazlitt and Anderson will have this cheerful goodbye. Anderson will somehow make it out alive and escape to Canada where he's able to write his story of what happened. But Hazlitt will be caught and executed. From Oberlin, Ohio, there's the uncle-nephew pair of Lewis Sheridan Leary, the uncle and his nephew John Copeland, both freed black men. And lastly, among the Black Raiders, there's the proud and stoic Shields Green, who goes by the nickname Emperor. Green has a much darker skin color than the other Black Raiders, and he will bear the worst of the abuses of the pro-slavery side after the raid. The historian Louis DeCarrier Jr. suggests that maybe he had a speech impediment or a learning disability, although it's impossible to know. DeCarrier actually writes an entire book about Shields Green, and the remarkable thing about it is so much of it is just question marks. We don't really even know what Shields Green's actual name was for sure. We don't know the name of his parents. We don't know if he has children still in bondage when he joins this insurrection. There's just a ton of unanswered questions about this guy. But we do know that Brown's Black Raiders, these five men, knew for sure that they were risking unimaginable torture if they got caught, which they did. And yet they go anyway. After the raid is over, Leary, Copeland, and Green, three of the five black soldiers who fought with Brown, will be hanged and executed by the state of Virginia. 
And after their deaths, their bodies are dug up by a group of racist medical students at the nearby Winchester Medical College. We have no idea what kind of grotesque experiments these racist medical students performed on these Black Raiders' bodies, but the families of Copeland and Leary will beg Virginia authorities to let them retrieve their bodies. The students, however, hide Leary and Copeland's bodies somehow even beyond the reach of the faculty at, at this medical college. And we don't know exactly how this happened, but roughly 20 years after his execution, a Georgia drugstore will be having an ad sale and they'll put on display to attract customers the skull of Emperor Shields Green telling the white people in the area to come and see one of the black men who died along with John Brown. And yet for all the horrible fate that awaits these guys, for a moment, as they prepare for their raid on the South, these men will live together in freedom as they converge on the Kennedy Farmhouse, which is in Maryland, just outside of Harper's Ferry. There's something I find really poignant about this brief interlude. The accounts of the men who were there talk about their months at the Kennedy Farmhouse in this idyllic and romantic way, even as they prepare to confront their own death. And you can sense it from the women's accounts too, because Brown's daughter Annie and Oliver's wife Martha will travel to the farmhouse, serving as housekeepers and cooks for the party. More importantly, obviously, they help with the cover story for these raiders who don't want to tell their neighbors that they're gathering to launch a violent and illegal raid. Right? A mixed race group of about two dozen people gathering in a single house for months on end is going to draw some unwanted attention. And so many of the men, especially the black recruits, will spend almost all day hiding in the attic of the farmhouse. Whenever a stranger from town comes by to the house, Annie or Martha will rush out to intercept them and make small talk with them while the men inside scramble to hide in the attic upstairs. Their conditions are, of course, far from ideal. Captain Aaron Stevens leads them in military drills to the extent that he's able. Brown, maybe still feeling burned by the Judas Forbes, will keep his plans extremely close to the vest, maybe too close. And yet, even with the specter of impending death, I think there's a remarkable beauty to this moment. The men read and play cards and checkers, and they have political and philosophical debates that go all night and into the morning. They adopt a stray dog who helps keep the watch. They forage for wild grapes and chestnuts and collect wildflowers in the woods and fields near the farm. They get together and sing hymns and popular songs. At nighttime, the black fighters are finally able to leave and explore and get some fresh air. Annie Brown would say years later that whenever a thunderstorm would break out that was loud enough to give the men cover from prying ears, the men would whoop and holler in celebration to get out their pent-up energy. Tony Horowitz's book Midnight Rising also makes much of the erotic charge between the two young women, particularly the single Annie Brown, and this house full of about 20 young and lonely and frankly horny soldiers. Annie Brown's sister will later say that she found her first lover at the Kennedy farmhouse, although we don't know who that is. And I want to stress there's a real sense of camaraderie that forms here. Not only are the men united by their aspirational vision for how they want to change the country, but for these few months at the Kennedy farmhouse, it seems like they actually live in reality the vision for the country at large that John Brown has. Men and women, black and white, poor and rich, all working together in common ownership under a shared roof, even if it is 24 people in a house with four rooms. The freed black Osborne Anderson will talk about this moment as if it's one of the happiest times of his life, even as he and the men that he's with face an almost certain prospect of death or imprisonment. Osborne Anderson will write, quote, I thank God that I have been permitted to realize to its fullest extent the moral, mental, physical, and social harmony of an anti-slavery family carrying out to the letter the principles of the anti-slavery cause. In John Brown's house and in John Brown's presence, men from wildly different parts of the continent met and united into one company, wherein no hateful prejudice dared intrude its ugly self. No ghost of a distinction found space to enter. The pulsations of each and every heart beat in harmony for the suffering and pleading slave, end quote. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? 
Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As John Brown begins to worry that his cover in this farmhouse will be blown, he's going to make one last-ditch effort at recruitment. And he and his second-in-command, John Kagey, will travel to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, about 50 miles north of Harper's Ferry. And there, in an old stone quarry, at a meeting set up by a freed black man, Kagey and Brown will again meet with the most famous abolitionist in the country. Frederick Douglass has come to meet them, and he's brought along a friend, the escaped slave from South Carolina, Shields Green. Brown will try to convince Douglas one last time to join the raiding party, but the famed orator is adamant. He thinks the raid is doomed, that it will end in death for all involved, and that it will turn the entire country against the abolitionist cause, that the Southerners will exact violent retribution on the enslaved population. Douglas will emphasize that Brown can still launch an attack on the South simply by trying to liberate the slaves, as he had in Missouri just a few months before, without going up against the entire government. The men will argue for two consecutive days. Douglas maintains that Harper's Ferry will be a steel trap. Eventually, Douglas resigns himself to his friend's inevitable death, and he says goodbye. Douglas will later write, quote, In parting, Brown put his arms around me and in a manner more than friendly said, Come with me, Douglas. I will defend you with my life. I want you for a special purpose. When I strike, the bees will begin to swarm, and I shall want you to help hive them. But my discretion, or my cowardice, made me proof against the dear old man's eloquence. Perhaps it was something of both which determined my course." End quote. And the whole time while Brown and Douglas are going back and forth, Shields Green is watching these two argue. And Douglas asks Shields Green if he wants to go with John Brown. Remember, like I said, it's not the case that all slaves and all free blacks support Brown and go with him, but some do. And Shields Green turns to Douglas and he says, quote, I believe I'll go with the old man. As I said, there's so much we don't know about Shields Green, but we know that he escaped the darkest depths of South Carolina. We know that he was almost enslaved. And just like that, despite being free, he decides to sacrifice himself for others. Within weeks, Green would be hanged on the gallows in front of 1,600 white people. On Sunday, October 16th, Brown gets his 22 men ready. He reads aloud from the Bible and his provisional constitution. The men listen in silence, and the mood is solemn. The men clean and load their guns. It's a cold, rainy night, and they drape themselves in long gray shawls, wearing them like ponchos. Brown puts on the old battered hat that he wore in Kansas, and as they prepare to depart, he gives his men one final instruction. John Brown says, quote, And now, gentlemen, let me impress this one thing upon your minds. You all know how dear life is to you, and how dear your life is to your friends. And in remembering that, consider that the lives of others are as dear to them as yours are to you. Do not, therefore, take the life of anyone, if you can possibly avoid it. But if it is necessary to take life in order to save your own, then make sure work of it." End quote. Nineteen men are going to storm the town. The other three of Brown's 22 raiders, including Brown's son Owen, will hang back in the farmhouse as a kind of rear guard unit, watching over the guns and other supplies. Brown drives the wagon while the other men follow behind him in two lines, the rifles slung over their shoulders. 
They march to the town in silence. The only sounds on the dark road are footsteps and the creak of their wagon. Brown sends two men ahead, including the spy John Edwin Cook, and they tear down the telegraph lines, cutting Harper's Ferry off, at least in theory, from the rest of the world. Harper's Ferry is located on a low-lying triangular peninsula, right on the Virginia-Maryland border, where the Potomac and the Shenandoah rivers converge. It's surrounded on two sides by rushing water, and then the other by a steep hill. There are just two bridges in and out of town. This is all to say, if you're trying to execute a hit and run on Harper's Ferry, it is not a place you want to get bogged down. The same reason that it's a relatively easy place to take will make it a very difficult place to get out of. Brown's men will approach from the Maryland side. They cross the Potomac at around 10.30 p.m. Brown's two most experienced soldiers, Aaron Stevens and John Kagey, the bronze and the brain, they'll take the lead. They are very quickly going to seize three buildings, the Federal Armory, the Federal Arsenal, this is where the guns are kept, and Hall's Rifle Works, which is another factory. Brown's men then also move quickly to take both bridges, the one in and out of town. And so things, again, are going exactly according to plan right now. In less than three hours from their departure from the Kennedy farmhouse, Brown's men have virtually total control over Harper's Ferry, and nobody has fired a single shot. Brown, around this point, will then send another raiding party up to a hill on the other side of town. This group includes Aaron Stevens, Shields Green, John Cook the Spy, and Osborne Anderson the writer I've been telling you about. Their mission is to kidnap the great-grandnephew of George Washington. Cook, the spy I was telling you about, had ingratiated himself with this guy, Lewis Washington, who was a prominent slaveholder, and Brown's men will burst into Lewis Washington's home in the middle of the night. Lewis Washington recognizes this guy, Cook, that he thought he was friendly with, and Cook and Brown's men will demand that Lewis Washington turn over two very important things. Because Cook had learned that Lewis Washington was in possession of two family heirlooms, a sword that the King of Prussia, Frederick the Great, had given to George Washington as a gift, and a pistol that George Washington had received from the French hero of the American Revolution, the Marquis de Lafayette. John Brown's men order Lewis Washington to go get these things, and Lewis Washington turns them over to Stevens, the white man. Stevens, however, rejects them and tells Lewis Washington that they must be given over to the freed black man Osborne Anderson. And so now, George Washington's sword and pistol are being wielded by a freed black man. The slaves kept by the descendant of America's founding father will now join John Brown's little army. Some of these will be the men that I was telling you about earlier who die, the slaves who died fighting with John Brown. But as this party begins riding back to Harper's Ferry, with their hostages and these freed slaves, things within the town are beginning to go terribly wrong. And around midnight, a relief watchman arrives at the railroad bridge where John Brown's men came, and he'll notice that the lights on the other side of the bridge are out. And thinking that strain with his lantern held up high, he walks across the bridge, and when he reaches the other side, Oliver Brown and a few of Brown's raiders emerge from the shadows. Oliver tells the relief watchman that he's being taken prisoner, but this watchman will punch Oliver in the face, knock him back against the rail, and then make a break for it. One of Brown's men will fire at him, the bullet will graze the watchman's head and knock off his hat, but will manage to keep running. At about 1.25 in the morning, a train bound from Maryland will chug into town, and this injured watchman, who has managed to evade Brown's men, will run out to the bridge and warn the conductor as blood streams down his face. The conductor stops the train, and passengers begin to get out. Rumors begin to swirl, and a few of the workers get off the train to see what's going on, including a black porter whose name is Hayward Shepard. Hayward Shepard will walk onto the bridge when one of Brown's men will order him to halt. Startled, Shepard will turn around and rush back to town, and as he's rushing back to town, another one of Brown's men will shoot him in the back, just below the heart. Hayward Shepard, this black Porter, a freed man, will be the first casualty at Harper's Ferry. And still to this day, you can see of how much the South loves the fact that the first person that John Brown's Raiders kill is a freed black man. Shepard will be called a faithful slave by groups like the United Daughters of the Confederacy. But the shot that kills Shepard actually ends up waking up a few people in town, and they run around sounding the alarm to nearby towns that Harper's Ferry is under attack by crazed abolitionists and that they need to get together and raise militias. 
And at this point, Brown is going to make two inexplicable mistakes. The first is that he doesn't get the hell out of Harper's Ferry immediately. In just a few hours, he has his guns, he has hostages, he has new recruits, he has freed slaves who want to fight with him, who are owned by the heir of George Washington. He should just pack up and ride like hell for the Blue Ridge Mountains. He could get there before daybreak. Instead, he stays in the armory and dawdles around. I mean, if I could bring John Brown back to life as we were discussing at the beginning, this is 100% the first question I would ask him. Why are you still here? Just get out immediately. And then the second mistake Brown makes is that he's just going to let this train go. The historians I've read seem divided on exactly why he does this. It seems like he either believed the conductor who gave assurances that he wouldn't sound the alarm, which is, of course, exactly what the conductor does when he gets to the next stop. Or maybe Brown thought that if he let the train go, it would signal that he didn't have particularly violent, that he was somewhat peaceful in his intentions, and that, therefore, the response would be more muted. Whatever the thinking was, it was erroneous. By 11 o'clock, President James Buchanan, the Secretary of War, the Governor of Virginia, and the United States Army have been notified of the insurrection. There are reports of 700 heavily armed black and white abolitionists rampaging across the countryside. Obviously, it's not what's happening, but the alarm has gone off. And to make matters worse for Brown, by morning, militia groups are beginning to mobilize and hit the road to Harper's Ferry. And to me, at least, these militias look a lot like the white mob that lynched Francis J. McIntosh way back in episode one, and that comprised the border ruffians that invaded Kansas. The writer Eugene Meyer will say in his book about Brown's Black Raiders that these white militias, this mob really, will break into the Charlestown jail and, incensed by the raid, will go jail cell to jail cell looking for a black prisoner. And they do find one and then they immediately hang him, according to Meyer's book. Increasingly drunk and increasingly incensed, this drunk white horde will begin to advance on John Brown's tiny little force at Harper's Ferry. And as they march, they begin to chant, according to Meyer, kill them, kill them, kill them. And so this mob is going to converge on one of the eastern bridges heading into town. One of the top soldiers that Brown put on this bridge to guard it is a black man who we mentioned earlier by the name of Dangerfield Newby. Newby was born into slavery, not very far from Harper's Ferry. One of 11 children born to a white male farmer and a female black slave. Even though his farmer is white, Newby grows up a slave. He is owned by his dad. Newby grows up to be strong, tall, and philosophical, and a highly skilled blacksmith. He would fall in love, get married, and have seven children, all of whom are born into slavery, with a woman named Harriet who belonged to a different slave owner. Newby was freed along with his 10 siblings in 1858, but his wife and their seven children remain trapped on a plantation in Virginia. After he's freed, Newby will work tirelessly as a blacksmith in the free state of Ohio, spending virtually every second he could raising money for his family. He put together the equivalent of $30,000 in today's cash to help secure their release. And he will meet with the doctor who owned his wife and his children. And with cash in hand, he begs this doctor for his family's release. According to Meyer's book, Newby actually, in fact, does pay the doctor for their freedom, only for the doctor to simply take the money and refuse to release his family. And it's after this that Dangerfield Newby will meet John Brown, who brings him here to this bridge in Harper's Ferry, where he and his comrades are doing the best they can to ward off this increasing onslaught from this white militia. Newby is one of Brown's best soldiers. As the white mob advances on Harper's Ferry, he's going to take aim at this white grocer and shoot him. Then Newby turns and fires on another white man advancing on the town, a slaveholder and West Point graduate named George Washington Turner. George Washington Turner falls, hitting the ground and dying right there. But like a zombie movie, there are too many of these members of the militia to fight off. And Newby and the other few brown men assigned to guard the bridge begin to fall back into town. And as he retreats, running through the town, Dangerfield Newby is hit. Many of the town's residents have no real ammunition, so a sniper in one of the buildings, apparently yet another descendant of George Washington, according to Meyer's book, George Washington's descendant will shoot Dangerfield Newby with a makeshift bullet. 
which is a six-inch spike crammed into the barrel of his gun. As Newby tries to return fire, although he's already bent over, a second spike will hit him, slicing through his neck and his throat and killing him. Newby's body will rot on the street for more than a day. Drunk and angry townspeople take turns stabbing at his wounds, at his neck wounds in particular, with sticks. These townspeople then take out pocket knives and cut off Dangerfield Newby's ears and his genitals to keep as souvenirs. As if that wasn't horrific enough, roving hogs come down the street and begin to eat at Dangerfield Newby's entrails. And that is why to this day, and I double-checked this on Google Maps, to this day, you can visit a street in Harper's Ferry called Hog Alley, where the boars devoured Dangerfield Newby. And yet, not even that is enough, because the day after the hogs have eaten at Dangerfield Newby's body, which is still rotting in Harper's Ferry, more drunk white townspeople come back, and one of them, apparently upset that he missed his chance to take part in the action defending Harper's Ferry, he will shoot Newby's corpse repeatedly, according to Eugene Meyer's book. Yet another white townsperson starts kicking Newby in the head. This guy's already been dead for more than a day and a half. Dangerfield Newby's mutilated body, at least according to the historian Tony Horowitz, will then be dumped in an unmarked pit. But miraculously, somehow, inside Dangerfield Newby's pockets, a letter is recovered that was sent by his wife. Harriet Newby, Dangerfield Newby's wife, was less than 50 miles from the site of the Harper's Ferry Raid. Her letter, dated August 16th, 1859, reads as follows, quote, I want you to buy me as soon as possible. For if you do not get me, somebody else will. There has been one bright hope to cheer me in all my troubles, and that is to be with you. For if I thought I should never see you on this earth, life would have no charm for me. Do all you can for me, which I have no doubt you will. I want to see you so much. The children are all well. The baby cannot walk yet. You must write soon and say when you think you can come. Your affectionate wife, Harriet Newby. Thank you again so much for making it through four full episodes uh, with us uh, here at American Carnage in our series on John Brown. Hope you're enjoying it. If you want to support the show, um, we'd be tremendously grateful again if you're willing to throw three bucks our way on our Patreon. You can find us um, at American Carnage on Patreon. No worries if not. As we've said, the whole five-part series will be made free of charge um, available to the public. Thank you again to our producer, Sophia Curzius, Elena Lacey for the cover art, Ned Porter for the music, and Stephen Griffith for the outro. Um, we'll see you again next time when we will conclude um, the raid at Harper's Ferry and show how it led directly to the Civil War that would forever change American history. Thanks again. John Brown's body lies moldering in the grave John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. His soul is marching on. The glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah, his soul is marching on. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. His soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul is marching on. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? 
How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.